All right, so as we, we kind of talked about the first two, which is the sacrifice and the mediatorial ministry of the, high, of the priest as two of the focuses, but there's three. So I just want to touch on the third one briefly. Um, so actually, let me back up. Um, so when we look at the third element of the sanctuary parable, it is the final judgment, right, which is what's resulting from the most holy place ministry. Now, this is tied, obviously, to the priestly ministry, just like the priestly ministry is tied to the substitutionary sacrifice. So if the substitutionary sacrifice is a reminder of the death of Jesus, then the priestly ministry is only possible through the death of Jesus, because obviously he needs blood to minister. But not only that, that blood also has to be carried into the most holy place to cleanse the sanctuary. And it is through that process that leads into the final judgment of all of the sins on the sanctuary being transferred to the scapegoat. So I just want to recap again briefly, because I, I don't think I specified um, in my final remarks that that was the third aspect of the parable. So again, the first one is the substitutionary sacrifice. The second one is the mediatorial ministry of the priests. And the third one is the final judgment, which is what we were just talking about in the most holy place. That only happened once a year. Okay, so let's talk about sanctification. What can the sanctuary teach us in this parable about sanctification? Now, I know that some of you probably subscribe to the idea that uh, the outer court is about justification, then the holy place is sanctification, and then the most holy place is glorification. You've probably heard that before, right? But as you study the parable, you don't really get that from the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that when people say that, they're being um, heretical. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is they're trying to be allegorical. They're saying that, oh, this is a part of sanctification. But we have to be clear that sanctification is not just something that is a process, right? How many of you guys have ever heard the statement, uh, sanctification is the work of a lifetime? How many of you guys have heard that statement? Okay. Now, you said sanctification is the work of a lifetime, right? Yes? Right, that's my next question. So you guys have heard it. How many of you guys believe that sanctification is the work of a lifetime? What's the difference? What do you mean every day you're going to be holy? Every day of your life. Uh-huh. So what does it mean? So what does that mean? Saint that means I have to be perfectly sanctified every day. It's not a matter of long length of time. Because I don't even know how long my life's going to be. Uh-huh. Because some people put this like in the future, in the future, in the future. Okay. I get your I get your concern. Okay. So I want to share with you a verse in the Bible. Okay. Go to Acts chapter 26, verse 18. This is where things sometimes get confusing. And this is where the sanctuary can be helpful. Acts 26, verse 18. 
So this is the Paul recounting his testimony. And Jesus is talking to him. Are you there? Okay, it says, To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are what? Sanctified by faith in me. Now, is that future, present, or past tense? The word sanctified? It's past tense. It's already happened. Right? It doesn't say sanctifying. It says, who have been sanctified, past tense. Say again? Correct. It's the same thing. If you are, that means you're on the present benefit of a past action, right? You are sanctified today. That means it was completed in the past, right? So that's actually a better translation of the Greek. Now, if you are sanctified past tense, how can it be the work of a lifetime? Yes. Right, but keeping it holy and making it holy are two different things. Okay, let, let me, let me uh, clue you in on something, right? The word sanctification and the word for holy are the same word. They just chose different words because they want to say holification. <laughs> right? So, they are the same word in Greek. So when you say, oh, they will be made holy, they'll be made sanctified. It's the same word. So when he says you are now sanctified, right, you receive forgiveness of sins and you are now sanctified. But then at the same token, right, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Are you there? Okay. Oh, I'm in 1st Timothy. Like, I wonder this does not look right. <laughs> All right, 1st Thessalonians chapter 5. Are we there? Okay, we're going to look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself do what? Sanctify you how? Completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So now, Acts 26, 18 says, Paul, your job is to bring people from the power of Satan unto the power of God so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified. Then Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, you know what my prayer for you is? Is that God would sanctify you completely. And preserve you blameless. But it's also the same thing in glory, because Paul also said that we've already been justified, sanctified, and glorified. Uh-huh. But yet we live. He says we've been glorified today. Well, he's he also said he's sitting in heaven. Yes. Yes, he is he is sitting in heaven. Because it's a matter of faith. He's saying this has been done, I accept it, and if uh, I accept it, I keep it. Right. 
But there's a difference by saying something has been done, right, and something will be done. wouldn't be the same thing, but I understand your point. Right, but there's a difference by saying the lamb was slain, right? When you, say, when you use that illustration, you're saying that the lamb was slain, but it had not actually been slain yet. <laughs> but it wasn't on the cross yet. Right, so what do we mean by the lamb was slain? We don't mean the same thing. Are you following? That's how we arrive at a contradiction. But it was not slain. So when he says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, he doesn't mean the lamb was killed. He means the lamb was planned to be killed. But not the same, because he wasn't slain yet until the cross. So let me ask you a question. Just to, I want to I take you to task on your point. So if the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, could Jesus have failed when he came to earth? Yes, he could have. So if he, could not, if he could have failed, then the lamb slain from the foundation of the world was an expression of faith, not reality. Yes, but at the same time, the father knew that he would have failed. You said the father knew that he would be... That he would have failed. He could have failed, but then the father knew. Yes, but the point is this, right? What the father knows is different than what we know. <laughs> so I understand what you're saying in God's mind in terms of knowing the future, what we're talking about is when we communicate in language, we're not talking to God. We're talking among ourselves, right? So in order to have understanding, we knew that when Jesus was upon the earth, right, and we read the Gospels, at that point in time, the lamb had not been slain. Until he dies on the cross and he's faithful the entire time while dying on the cross, the lamb has not been slain. That's why Jesus didn't say it is finished until when? Until it was finished. Amen. <laughs> so I understand how you're trying to resolve the dilemma through the issue of faith, but you're right and you're wrong, right? Faith is a component, but we don't believe things in faith that we currently have, right? No man hopes for what he possesses, right? You believe that you have it, but you do not yet have it. That's why you have it in faith. <laughs> if you have it in faith, you do not have it in reality by definition. That's why the Bible says Abraham and all the patriarchs died in faith, not having received the promises. If they didn't die in faith, that means they received the promises. There was no need for faith. Here's the point. This is why we get confused about sanctification. Sanctification is a work of a lifetime. That is true. And we'll look at that in a minute. But when we read in Acts 26, verse 18, we must keep in mind that sanctification is not just a process, it is also a status. It is a position that we have. So let me, let me explore this a little bit more with you in the Bible. So now, when you look at sanctification as a status, I want you to go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 13. Are you there? Okay, the Bible says, He has delivered us from the power of what? 
darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of what? Since I want you to know, what does that word conveyed means? What does your translation say? You were translated, right? Now you know where we get the word from. Translated. The word simply means to be transferred. You were changed. So when Paul says in Acts 26, 18, he says, this is what Jesus told me. My job is to bring people from the power of Satan and of darkness to light and to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith, which is in me. Now Paul writes to the church in Colossae and he says, listen, he delivered us from the power of darkness. And as he delivered us from the power of darkness, he literally translated us, he transferred us from the devil's kingdom. We've now been annexed into the kingdom of Christ. Amen. So before I was a child of the devil's kingdom, I was a member of his kingdom. But because I accepted Christ, at that moment, my status has now been changed. The word sanctified simply means to be set apart. So now God says, the moment that we are justified, what else happened? We were sanctified. We were set aside for a holy use. This is where the confusion comes in. Justification says you are right with God. You are declared righteous. Sanctification says you've been set aside now into his kingdom to do his purposes in his will. But now that you're in his kingdom, you do not currently possess the character. <laughs> are you following? So you've been put into God's kingdom now. You are considered a child of God. And I'm going to look at one other verse. But now that you've been transferred into his kingdom... Now you have to begin the process that as you set yourself apart to God, God begins to work in you to now make you the reality of what he has declared you in justification. So he says in justification, you are holy, you are forgiven, you are righteous, you are cleansed. But guess what? You also have to be free from the power of sin. You are still sinful. You are still have a propensity. I want to read you a statement from the spirit of prophecy. It's an interesting statement. I think you'll like it. It says this. There is in the religious world a theory of sanctification which is false in itself and dangerous in its influence. In many cases, those who profess sanctification do not possess the genuine article. Their sanctification consists in talk and will worship. Those who are really seeking to perfect Christian character will never indulge the thought that they are sinless. Now watch this. Their lives may be irreproachable. <laughs> that means you can't find anything wrong with their life. They may be living representatives of the truth which they have accepted. But the more they discipline their minds to dwell upon the character of Christ and the nearer they approach to his divine image, the more clearly will they discern his spotless perfection. And the more deeply will they feel their own defects. When persons claim that they are sanctified, 
giving sufficient evidence that they are far from being holy. (laughs) They fail to see their own weakness and destitution. They look upon themselves as reflecting the image of Christ because they have no true knowledge of him. The greater the distance between them and their Savior, the more righteous they appear in their own eyes. You know what this idea led to? It's led to a concept of what we call holy flesh doctrine. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for reminding me. I have a habit of doing that sometimes. Um, The reference is the sanctified life, page seven and eight. The sanctified life, page seven and eight. Now, this leads to what we call the holy flesh doctrine. So there was a time in a place in Indiana, you probably read this statement, where she talks about drums and a bedlam of noise and all these different things. These people believed that because they were already holy and sanctified, that they can indulge in any desire and it was pure because they were pure. They they had not just holy character, they had holy flesh. Now, in the sanctuary as we explore this parable in the light of sanctification, we must first recognize it as a status. Through the blood of Christ, as soon as that lamb is killed and the priest carries that blood into the holy place and sprinkles it and makes atonement for us, we've been transferred. We are now members of his kingdom. But now, at that point in time, what is God's goal? To have us keep coming back with new lambs? No, God's goal God's goal is to not only free us from the penalty, but to free us from the power of sin. That's what sanctification is all about. And that is what takes the work of a lifetime. That's why she says no person who possesses sanctification will ever say they are sinless. She says it is proof evidence that they are not. Now, let's talk about the issue of assurance. Because when we say this, right, our church gets a lot of flack for teaching this, even though Methodists teach this too. We get a lot of flack because people feel like, where is the hope? Where is the assurance? Now, here becomes, here becomes the, the, the beauty of our message in these last days. Because of our understanding of the sanctuary, What does the sinner do in the sanctuary? We said this, right? The sinner brings the lamb. The sinner confesses over the head of the lamb. The sinner kills the lamb. After that, the sinner leaves the sanctuary. And what happens? Who takes over? The priest. Who's ministering always on the sinner's behalf? The priest. And it's through the priest that the sinner, though he's not in the sanctuary, he always has access to who? To God. He always has access to the Holy Spirit through the golden candlesticks. He always has access to the bread of life, to the word of God. He always has access to bringing his prayers to God. Because, listen to this, Desire of Ages, I mean, this quote always, always reminds me. She says, the prayer of the humble suppliant the prayer of the humble suppliant, Jesus offers as his own prayer in that soul's behalf. Are you following what I just said? When we come to God to pray, 
if we are humble and we are sincere in our prayer, she says that in heaven, God is literally repeating the words, the prayer, to God on your behalf. He says, this is my prayer for Sebastian. Can God tell Jesus no? Yes or no? No, he can't tell Jesus no. Because Jesus is sinful. Sinless, sorry, not sinful. <laughs> That's how you know I'm still working in my sanctification. <laughs> Jesus is sinless. So Christ, God has no reason to tell him no. So now when, 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 I, when I come to offer my prayer, he offers my prayer as his own request in my behalf. And she says he will offer it without one stammering word. Perfect mixed with the incense of his own righteousness. When we understand the priestly mediation, we recognize that while we are going through the process of being sanctified, in terms of the process of changing our character, we are still sanctified in his kingdom. We've been transferred over. This is not an issue of you're in and out. We have this idea of this daily, I'm in today, I'm out tomorrow. No, you were transferred into the kingdom. This is why we have a book of life. So when the judgment comes and the book is analyzed, is this person a real believer? They professed faith in Jesus. But now let's look at the books. And if we continue to have faith and hold on to Jesus, you cannot be lost. It is impossible. As long as we hold on to Jesus. Now, let me get... Let me be very clear what I'm saying, because when I was going through this with God in my hotel room today, I said, Lord, give me the words so that people do not misunderstand what I'm saying. When I say hold on to Jesus, I'm not saying say you're holding on to Jesus. I mean, actually holding on to Jesus. There are people that will say, oh, yeah, you know, as long as you have faith in Christ, I was at a mall near my house, and this woman was Christian, we got into a great conversation, and she said, people want, what else do you need to do to be saved? They try to make it hard to be saved. I'm like, it ain't hard to be saved. It's easy to be saved. It's hard to be lost. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. <laughs> so you want to go down the transgression road, it's going to be a hard life. So she's like, amen, amen. I ain't never heard a seven-day Adventist saying this and that and the third. And I looked at her and I said, well, ma'am, you know, I believe in all the Bible. So she's like, yeah, you know, how can you lose your salvation? How can your father stop loving you? I said, no, God will never stop loving you, but God will never force you. And I said, his goal is not just to forgive you. His goal is to help you to be back to where he created you to be. I said, if that's right, if, I'm like, if that's work-centered, if that's removing assurance, I said, look, there's a difference between working for my salvation and working with my salvation. There's a difference. Jesus looked at the thief on the cross and he said, Assuredly, I say unto you, today. Today. You will be with me in paradise. The brother wasn't even baptized yet. Ain't even get off the cross. Ain't give a Bible study. Ain't attend a synagogue. Didn't go to apologize. He said, assuredly, I say unto you today. Why? Because he said, Lord, remember me. That's all he said. So at that point, when that thief 
gets his legs broken, taken back in a Roman dungeon at that particular moment in time, he knows I've been sanctified. My status has been changed. Now I've been annexed into the kingdom of Christ. And in a kingdom, there's a law. In that kingdom, there's a king. But he knows that I don't have the power to behave like a son of God. That's okay, because the Bible said, to as many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. How can we become children of God? It's only through what? His power. So who's doing it? He is. Which is what the parable was trying to teach us all along. We need to remain having faith in the priest's work in the sanctuary. And that's why Paul said, he that has begun a good work will do what? I need to end this. When we talk about the process, I want to be very, very clear. When God created the world, how many days did God take? Six days. Now, I want you to follow my question. Could God have created the world in one day? Yes? You all agree? Okay. But it took him how many days? So if God could have created the world in one day and he decided to take six, guess what this teaches us about God? God does not do in a day what he can do. God does in a day what he plans to do. Are you following? The first day all God made was light. Is that all God can do? On the second day, he just made the clouds and the atmosphere and then the waters on the earth. Is that all God can do? So let me get this straight. God is going day by day through something that I can do more but I'm doing only what I plan to do. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And he took time to look at what he had made. And he saw, it's good. I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> the Bible says, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. So if that is how God did the first creation, why would he change his method in the second? He started creation. Did he finish it? Yes or no? So here's the point. God is not going to do in your life in a day what he can do. He's going to do what he plans. You think God can't make you holy today? He can reveal all your faults to you today. Do you think you can handle it? No. So what is really slowing God down is not God himself. It is our capacity that Jesus looks us like he looked at the disciples. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So don't get frustrated in the Bible and say, God, you know, I'm reading the Bible and it seems like God is saying these things to me. God's like, that's enough for now. Don't think I ain't got anything else to say to you. I got plenty to say. I am a holy God. My standard is perfection. I got plenty to say, but don't worry. I only take my time to do what I plan to do.
God has a plan for today how he's going to restore you into his image. And he has a plan daily. And during that time, though you may fall, you have a high priest. So you always have access to him. But it also reminds us that while God doesn't do everything he can in a day, he's also not going to take forever. Eventually, the sixth day arrived, and God said, he looked at everything that he had made, and it was very good. And he says, the evening and the morning were the sixth days, the, were, were the sixth day, and God looked at everything that he had made. He says, the heavens and the earth, they were finished. And then God said, you know what, I'm going to create a day just to enjoy what I have done. God didn't rest because he was tired. God rested as one pleased with his work. So this encourages us to recognize two things in sanctification. As long as our faith remains in Jesus, and I mean real faith. I'm not talking about professed faith. Don't just say you mentally agree with Jesus. You like the idea of Jesus. No, we're talking about real faith that leads to submission. That leads to believing his word. That leads to trusting his goodness. In that faith that we have, if we recognize that, guess what God, what are you trying to do today? And when you look at the end of the day, you take time to see what God has done. And you just let the evening and the morning be whatever day it is. Because it is a daily work that God is doing. Our goal is to cooperate with his work. But I'm also encouraged. And I don't have to be discouraged when I see all these faults that are still in my life. Because he that has begun a good work will what? Will complete it. I'm going to finish. Don't worry. I'm going to finish. When it came to creation, was it not finished? When it came to redemption, was I not on the cross and did I not say, it is finished? And one day very soon, he's going to say, it's finished. I'm done. It's time for you to come home. Have a Sabbath to enjoy what the Lord has done. He will perform the work and he will complete it. I need to end. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. As we pray, Father in heaven, the time has failed us. But perhaps there's someone here in this seminar that has become discouraged, overwhelmed with their faults, and they feel like God is not going to finish his work. Maybe you're worried that you're not going to be complete in time to meet the Lord. But today, God wants to encourage you. He wants to say, listen, 
my child, my son, my daughter. I have begun a good work. If I started, I'm going to finish. God doesn't start anything that he doesn't finish. And so today, God is calling you to put your faith back in what Jesus can do. To stop worrying about how long it's going to take and just enjoy the process. If you want to say, Lord, I felt this way, and today you want to ask God to help your faith, help you to trust the process. I just want to invite you to stand to your feet. You say, Lord, help me to trust the process. That he that has begun will complete it. Father in heaven, you see those of us who have stood and you know why we stood. But now as we stand we know without the shadow of a doubt that we are standing in your grace. With all of our faults, with all of our failures, Lord, with all of our defects that we see more and more as we draw nearer to Jesus. But may we day by day consecrate ourselves to God each morning. That we would set aside ourselves for that day. That we would lay all our plans at his feet that we'd be willing to surrender those that God would lead us to give up and that we would be faithful and diligent in those that God enjoins upon us. And Lord, when the day is over, help us not to be discouraged because God is not going to do everything today, but he is going to finish and he's not going to take forever. Soon and very soon, we're going to enter into that millennium Sabbath to enjoy what the Lord has done. We love you and thank you for these gifts. And we offer this prayer from our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.